go to the Lord and start our time in the Word with uh, some prayer. Father, I thank you for your Word that we get to dive into this morning. Um, I thank you that as we just sang, we can come into your presence through the life of Christ and through what he's done for us, through the cross and the resurrection and his ascension to the throne. Lord, I thank you so much that we have a human like us who represents us in your presence for all eternity. I thank you that we don't have to base our acceptance by our maker, whether he's going to accept us or not. We don't have to base it on how good we did this week, but on how good Christ has been. And I pray that we would just hang our hearts there and hope in Christ. Mm -hmm. Jesus is in our prayer. Amen. Mm -hmm. Alright, well this morning we're going to be looking at Acts, finishing up chapter 1. Kicking the can a little further, as they say, into the, into the book. So, last week, I'll uh, just remind you of what we saw. We looked at Luke's introduction to the book of Acts in the first 14 verses. And there, uh, Luke is focusing on really what I called last week the two bookends of the Christian life. Jesus leaves the earth, and Jesus will return to the earth. And all of our lives, the mission of the church, what we're doing, what the book of Acts is all about is everything that happens in between the ascension of the king to the throne and the return of the king to the new creation that he is going to make. And that he started even now with us. Okay, so in the middle, there's the mission. And the mission that Jesus is accomplishing through his church by the power of the Spirit is to witness to him and to his salvation to the ends of the earth, to tell people about his rule and reign. Now, we left off our time in Acts chapter 12 to 14, 1 verses 12 to 14 last week, and those verses, chapter 1 verses 12 to 14, those three verses, they're kind of like, they're part of the introduction, but they're kind of like a hinge. A hinge verse between um, the action of verses 1 to 12 and the action that we're going to look at today where Peter stands up in the midst of the disciples. So this is the stage that's set. So I'll read it again. Verse 12. The apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, <coughs> Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. I want you to memorize all those names. There'll be a quiz for them. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So together in a room, you have 11 men praying. These men are apostles. And we'll talk a minute in a 
minute about what's unique about the apostles, why these men get to be apostles. But with them, they're not alone. There's Mary, Jesus' mother, and some other women who have followed Jesus, probably the women who went to the tomb with Jesus, Johanna and Mary Magdalene and others. And they're waiting together, like Jesus told them. They're praying and they're waiting for the spirit of Jesus to be poured out on them and empower them to witness boldly to the resurrection of the king and to his salvation. So as they're praying, Peter takes the initiative to do something. He stands up in the midst as they're praying, and let's read now our passage that we're going to be focusing on today, Acts 1, 15. To 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. That's a packed upstairs. So, right, you have the 11 apostles with Peter and Mary and um, Jesus' brothers, and then there must be a lot of others. 120. And said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He, Judas, was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong, and his body burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and again, may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What are they supposed to witness to? Well, verse 22 gives us a hint. Witnesses to his triumph over death. And if you follow through the book of Acts, the apostles <coughs> are obsessed with the resurrection. Every sermon, they... Every sermon they preach, they always beat a beeline, make a beeline for the resurrection at the end. So, verse 23, they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. Poor guy's got three names. Parents couldn't make up their mind. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. All right, so this morning, we're going to work through this section. We're going to do three steps here, kind of three handles that you can hold on to to navigate our way through, right? And those are on the back of your bulletin. And as usual, I encourage you to flip your 
little handout over and follow along. Sometimes it helps as you hear things to also see things. And for some of you, maybe to write things down. We want to remember so that um, next time you read the Bible, the book of Acts, that you may remember some of those things. I try to preach, one of my goals in preaching is to help you learn how to read your Bibles, right? So that, that's why we work through verses, okay? So that it's like, oh, this is a way to put this all together. So we're going to see three things here, the fate of Judas, second, the need for the 12 apostles, and third, the choice of Matthias. So the fate of Judas, the need for 12 apostles, not 11, and the choice of Matthias. And the main idea, it's simple. Because Judas betrayed Jesus, the number of apostles needs to be restored to 12 again. And everything else that we read in these verses, there's a lot of details, it just kind of fills out the details of the how and the who and the what. So point one, the fate of Judas. So the first thing we'll see is that the betrayal of Judas was predicted in Psalm 41, verse 9. As Peter stands up and starts to talk about what happened to Judas, one thing seems at the center of Peter's mind. And I think Luke, the Gospel writer's mind as well. Luke wants us to know this. This betrayal didn't happen by accident. Okay? In other words, Jesus wasn't just this super gullible guy walking around talking about peace and love who suddenly got blindsided by a treacherous friend. Okay? Jesus knew exactly who would betray him. He picked him. And he loved him. The writers of the gospel accounts make that really clear. And Luke wants us to see this. Not only did Jesus know about Judas's betrayal, but Judas's betrayal was predicted, or another word you could use for it would be um, the pattern for it was established, laid down in the book of Psalms. So you see that in Acts 1.16? The scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter is referring to Psalm 49, 41, verse 9, which says, Even my close friend, the Psalm of David, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Remember, Jesus symbolically gets the bread of Judas and gives it to him, right? The one who's eating my bread has lifted up his heel against me. It's kind of a symbol of trying to stomp on me now. Now, in the context of Psalm 41, if you go back to the psalm in your Bible, the psalmist David is writing. However, the, the authors of the Bible and Jesus himself and the apostles, they all believe David, the king of Israel, this ancient king, remember him, the most popular king of Israel, uh, David was a type or a picture of of the coming Messiah, the rescuer, who was supposed to one day be born into David's family. And David and the other writers of the Bible, they believed that the, the things that David experienced in his life, 
they pointed forward to the future experiences of his future son, who would be his heir and sit on his throne, Jesus, the son of David. So when Peter says that Psalm 41 verse 9 was fulfilled, he, he means that the, the pattern that David experienced, like you ever say, oh, my grandpa experienced the same thing. Right? Like great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, David, underwent the same type of thing. And so Jesus is, is the new David. He's the son of David. He's the Davidic king who's coming. And so the Bible puts forth David as a picture. Well, things that happened to David, not all of them, but many of them, which are recounted in the Psalms, are pictures and types of pointing forward towards what Jesus would experience. So the language, I'll just pause here in a second, the language of prediction, the Bible predicts things, but the language of prediction is a little tricky here. Because it's not, if you're looking at the Psalms, you wouldn't necessarily say, well, that's a prediction in Psalm 41. It's not like David is saying, um, dear reader, in the future, I'm going to have a son who's going to be betrayed by a guy who eats bread with him. That's not what David said. That would be like a clear prediction. And yet Peter can look back and say, the scriptures were fulfilled, which said, he who lifted up his heel against me, ate bread, my bread, lifted up his heel against me. Scripture can be fulfilled through not just the fulfillment of a prediction, but also of a pattern. A pattern that was established what happened to David you expect it to happen to David's future son because the Bible holds forth David as a picture for us of, not a perfect picture, but a picture, a true picture of what Jesus would be. David, defeating Goliath. Brian wrote a whole book on this. Remember Brian Barrett? Um, called The Serpent and Samuel. And Goliath is pictured as a serpent and David defeats Goliath and it's all a picture. David's defeat of the serpent-like Goliath. He's wearing scaly armor, and he's called a, uh, you know, anyway, we, we don't have time to go there. But he's, he's, he's described as a serpent. <laughs> and it's a giant serpent. David defeats him by whacking his head. It's, it's allusion to Genesis 3.15, the human who is going to come from a woman and crush the head of the snake. David is all over the Bible pictured as this. So David, the Psalms are, 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 considered prophetic, pointing towards Jesus in the way that Jesus is going to fulfill the patterns that they lay down. So David was betrayed in Psalm 41 by a close friend who ate his bread. And that fulfills a pattern. Jesus fulfills that pattern. He's betrayed. It's not a surprise. Jesus expected to be betrayed. And he knew by the power of the Spirit in him that it was going to be Judas who was going to do it. And he gave him bread to make it clear this is what's happening this pattern is being fulfilled now if you're following in the niv translation um it's helpful uh verses 18 to 19 have parentheses around them you see that the brackets around verses 18 and 19 that shows that this isn't peter talking anymore peter stands up and starts to speak and then luke steps in the, the narrator and kind of gives a uh a narrative aside and he says um, some really gross details, okay? He says, verse 18, 
Judas bought, or more specifically, the word here, if you have a pen and you are into these things, cross out bought and write acquired. He got it. It doesn't actually say in the text, he, the, the, the writers are saying, it's, they're, they're trying to translate, like, how did he get the field? Well, he bought it. He used money. We'll see in a minute. He didn't actually buy it, but he, he acquired it. It's important. He came into possession of it. Um, he acquired a field with the payment for his wickedness. In the field, Judas fell headlong, and he burst open, and his intestines spilled out. Very graphic, really disgusting, right? And it caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. Everyone heard about it. I mean, imagine you walk down by the river in the park, going to make not just the papers in Granville. That would probably be on the news if it was at this level of grossness. And the field gets a name, Akeldama, which means field of blood. There's a second reason it's called the field of blood, and we'll see that in a minute. Luke's description on a first read of it, Luke's recount here, these eight, verses 18 and 19, seem a little bit different then Matthew's account of what happened to Judas in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10. And it's differences in accounts like this that make some people say, hey, see, the authors of the New Testament, they don't all agree with each other on the facts of what happened. The Bible contains errors. It's wrong. But I think that if we give the Bible what I would call the benefit of the doubt here, we can find ways to explain how, hey, these differences um, are, are not actually contra contradictory stories. They're just differences that two people would have telling accounts of, like, like imagine me and Luke reflecting on something that, my brother Luke, reflecting on something that happened 30 years ago. Okay? We would tell the same story and try to tell it truthfully, but we might tell it a little bit different. And it might not, sometimes maybe because his brain's better than mine, he remembers it better. But it might just be because we're trying to summarize it in different ways, or we're telling different perspectives of it. That's kind of what's going on. They're writing 30 years later, after these things happened, Luke and Matthew. And so they're summarizing it different ways, different descriptions of the same events, but they're not necessarily contradictory. And so um, I want to read Matthew's description for you, and then I want to show you a way that it could be what the word is harmonized, how they could be the same description. Here's Matthew's description. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, Matthew 27, 3-10, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So how could he have bought a field if he returned the money? That's why I think the, the word acquired, which is actually the natural sense of the word there, it's not bought, um, is a better translation. He, so he returns the money to the, to the priest. I don't want it. I feel sad about what I did. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. 
This is what the leaders of Israel say. Who cares? That's not our problem, bud. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. His blood be on your head. What? You killed him, guys. But anyhow, verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple and left and went away. And Matthew just summarizes, hanged himself. He doesn't say when he hung himself. It just, we're assuming it was at some point after that. He went away. Fast forward, he hanged himself. The chief priest picked up the coins and said, it is against the law to put this into the treasury, the temple treasury, since it is blood money. They used the money to hire somebody to betray his friend to death. Whoa, it's dirty money. You can't keep it in the temple. It's, it's ridiculous. So they decided to use the money. Don't put it in God's house, but, you know, you can't just throw it away. Let's use it to buy a burial field for the potter's field as a burial place for foreign people. Not Jewish people, but for foreign people who happen to die in Israel. That's why it's called the field of blood to this day. Blood money bought it. And blood money as in money used to betray somebody to death. And it was a burial field for people. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took, 30, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Uh, showing how Matthew gets that from Jeremiah is, another, is for another day. But what I found to be the most helpful way of summarizing Luke and Matthew's account is, is this. Judas, after betraying Jesus, he's filled with remorse, sadness. He brings the 30 people, the 30 pieces of silver, which is like a few hundred bucks, guys. Not lots. To the leaders of Israel. And they couldn't put that money in the temple treasury, so they use it to buy a field. Technically, it's still Judas's money. They gave it to him. That's kind of like hot potato now. And so it's not wrong to say Judas got a field with his money. They're like, well, we're just going to use the money that we gave him. He, we don't want it back, but we'll just buy a field with it. He acquired it indirectly with blood money. And Judas, after hearing of the purchase of the field, the graveyard, decides to bury himself and kill himself there. So he goes there and hangs himself. And after a few days, but what, what does Luke say he fell headlong? Well, if you hang long enough, all out of the news, and your bloated body will burst open. And that's most likely what happened where someone came and found him hanging there and cut him down, and he burst open. So there's multiple ways that we could try to harmonize these details of the story and say, no, these stories don't contradict. They're just different summaries of different events. And so now... Uh, let's look at verse 20. Luke resumes telling us what Peter said. So Luke gives us the parentheses, and now see how the parentheses ends at the end of verse 19, and it's resuming what Peter says. Uh, For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. So here Peter is sharing with the church that the fate of Judas, Judas's fate of being cut off, of dying, was predicted. That's from Psalm 69, verse 25. Um, in your Bible, sometimes you'll have 
little letters next to the, the verse that you're reading, and the little letters will cross-reference like the letter A to the margins, and there'll be a, a passage reference there. And whenever they quote the Old Testament, that passage reference, you could go look it up. That's Psalm 69, verse 25. <coughs> Psalm 69 is a Psalm of David. Surprise, surprise, right? All about the sufferings of God's chosen king, of, of King David. And Jesus, who sees himself as reliving the experiences of his grandfather David, Jesus believed that was God's plan. And so Jesus... Peter, they believed that uh, um, what would happen to Jesus being betrayed by a friend who's then cut off is, is going to, what happened to David is going to be happening to Jesus. So Psalm 69, in verse 21, it says things like this. They, my enemies, gave me vinegar for my thirst. That's what the Romans did to Jesus when he was being crucified. Verse 25 those who have treated the king brutally, the passage says in Psalm 69, will be cut off. So that's why Peter quotes this and applies it to Judas. Judas is going to face the same fate as the enemies of King David in Psalm 69. And then finally, Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. So he's all over the Psalms here to explain that the replacement of this betraying friend who's cut off. His replacement is even predicted, or the pattern is established. See that in Acts 120? May another take his place of leadership. That's a quote. In Psalm 109, King David is crying out this, what's called an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer calling on God to bring his enemies to justice. God, you see what they did to me? Please do something. Bring justice. And in the psalm, David says he's been betrayed by people that he's only been a friend to. Jesus had only been a friend to Judas. But now, their places of leadership along, are going to be replaced by others. So this pattern is something that Peter sees as being fulfilled in what they're about to do. So again, just one last time I'll say that the life of David is like a template, a blueprint. You ever built a building with a blueprint? Right? You need one. Um, the life of David is like a blueprint for um, how Jesus' life is going to go. Except Jesus is greater, and he's going to live forever. The 150 psalms that are recorded in our Bible, they're not just a handful of psalms about Jesus in the midst of them. All the psalms are stitched together in a way that encourages us to read them as pointing towards Jesus, the son of David. We'll preach the psalms someday. We'll see how that happens. But the second thing to notice this morning is the need for 12 apostles. So look at um, what Peter says, Acts 1, 21 to 22. Therefore... It was necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. So why is it necessary to have these 12 apostles? Why did Judas need to be replaced and the number be brought back up to 12 specifically? Uh, why did Jesus even choose 12 apostles in the first place? Well... 
We talked about this in the past week. You remember how many tribes there were in Israel? There was 12. And who was supposed to lead all the tribes of Israel? Judah, the king of Judah, David's son. So one from Judah, where Jerusalem was located, the king of Jerusalem was to rule over the 12 tribes of Israel. That was not happening in Jesus' day. Who was king of Israel in Jesus' day? Shout it out. Herod. Was Herod an Israelite? No. Herod was actually, um, Jacob is the father of Israel. His name actually means Israel. You remember who Jacob's hairy brother was? Esau. Esau, not part of the promised children. Herod was from the line of Esau. This is the king of Israel. And uh, the other leaders of Israel, um, the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, um, good leaders or bad leaders? What, what's their claim to fame? We killed the son of David. We killed our king. Do you think those leaders need to be replaced? Yeah. It's even predicted in the prophets that the, the shepherds of Israel and Zechariah are feeding on the people and in Ezekiel. Okay? They need new shepherds, new leaders. And God's going to give them one shepherd, David, and a new leadership. The leadership of the twelve apostles. So there needs to be twelve apostles to replace, and not just twelve apostles then, but twelve Israelite apostles to replace the leaders of the twelve tribes and bring about the restoration to Israel under the true king, the son of David. So I want you to listen to what Jesus says in the first part of this two-part volume, Luke Acts. Back in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 32, Jesus says something about the apostles that explains his vision for these twelve. He says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, I give you a kingdom, just like my father has conferred one on me. You are leaders of the kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of the twelve tribes. So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they're going to judge. That's not like, um, it's not just courtroom language there. It's, it's leadership language. They're going to judge as in they're going to lead. Just like the judges ruled Israel in the time of the judges. The rulers. Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Satan has asked to sift you all as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So, Jesus' plans for the twelve are that they're going to rule over Israel in the kingdom of God. When God's king, Jesus, reigns, which he does now, the, the twelve apostles will be his rulers. And that's what the language of judging means. Then Jesus says to Peter, you must strengthen your brothers after you are sifted. Now, you remember, Peter denies Jesus, but then here we see him standing up in the midst of his brothers and strengthening them, adding to their number, to 12. 11 isn't strong enough, you need 12 to lead the tribes. And so Peter remembers what Jesus says, and that's why he gets up and 
Now, what qualifies someone as an apostle? Well, if you look at what Peter says, he says the men they needed to select must be men who had been with them all along, beginning with the baptism of John up through the ascension of Jesus. So they were eyewitnesses. They saw everything with their own eyes, Jesus' ministry. That's what qualified somebody to this unique position of being one of the twelve. And there was not limitless amounts of men that could be selected for this. However, two men are put forward who meet these qualifications. Which leads to the third and final thing this morning, the choice of Matthias. Listen, if you would, to the words found in Acts 1, 23-26. So they nominated two men, the guy with three names, Joseph, Barsabbas, Justice, um, and Matthias. Sometimes I wonder if God picked Matthias because it would be confusing to have a guy with three names. I'm just kidding. Yeah, probably not. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belonged. Then they cast, which was the grave. Then they cast lots, and the lots fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. So two guys we see here are nominated. Two men who have met the qualifications of having been with Jesus all along <coughs> until his ascension. And that's Joseph and the guy with and the, the guy with three names and then Matthias, right? And the Lord, in this context, the Lord Jesus, they ask him to show which guy has taken Jesus' place. And this is how they start their prayer. Lord, you know the hearts of men. Jesus knows what's in the heart of a man, and Jesus knows the right man for the job. Right? And so then they ask Watts. Lord Jesus, these men externally, as far as we can see, they're both equally qualified. So how are we going to decide? Well, in this case, they do something that happened at times in the Old Testament where they were trying to choose people for office. They throw lots, and uh, one person is chosen over another. So the Lord Jesus is sovereign over the cast lot. Even the roll of the dice, Jesus is sovereign over it. Which is actually something mentioned in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. The Bible of the early church. Proverbs 16.33 says... The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is sovereign over the roll of the dice. This is his world. So the disciples made a decision with the roll of the dice. Now, this doesn't seem to be descriptive of how God wants you and I to make all our decisions as Christians. Imagine a girl who has two guys fall in love with her. And they're both handsome and strong, and they've got a lot going for them, and she's just really torn. In the old days, maybe these guys would do it out. The, the, the lot would be decided to by a Smith & Wesson. But that was not, that's not usually how we do it, right? In these days, sometimes these guys might fight. But... Imagine this girl reads this verse and she says, Oh, Lord Jesus, you know the hearts of men. 
If it's a six, come on, they're both six, right? Okay, it's going to be this guy as opposed to another. I don't think the Lord is calling us to that. This is not the normative way that Christians make decisions. This way of deciding things. Though it happened several times in the Old Testament, we don't see it anywhere else in the entire Bible after the Old Testament, except for here in the book of Acts at this critical juncture. And what has happened here is, well, something hasn't happened here yet. What do the disciples not have yet that they'll get in chapter 2? The Holy Spirit. And then from this point out, everywhere else throughout the book of Acts, it is the Holy Spirit who guides the church in all their decision makings. You see this. Alright? And the, the Holy Spirit will even, they'll say, like, I tried to go one place, and the Spirit stopped me. How did that happen? Well, maybe the ship broke, and they, they interpreted that as the, the Spirit didn't let me go. The Spirit guides. He guides through a host of ways, which we'll talk about in Acts as we go along. One key way is His Word. His written Word. And the Word of the Apostles. That guide the church in the ways of Jesus that they saw and wrote down. Another way that the Spirit guides the church is through prophetic words. Words like words from the prophet Agabus that said, Hey, there's a famine coming. The Spirit's really put this on my heart. We've got to get ready. And words like, um, uh, drawing a blank. Anyhow, there's other examples of this prophetic words. Oh, Paul's vision of a man from Macedonia. That's what I was thinking about. Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia asking for help. The Spirit guides sometimes through visions. And yet, the, the lot is not something we see. So don't roll dice to decide whether you should make a road trip next week or not. Pray about it. Lean into the Spirit. Ask him if it's wise. And Matthias is chosen here and joins the twelve. Now, let's move to some application. I'm not going to do a deep dive into anything particular. I just want to make a couple observations from the passage that ought to shape how we think about the Christian life. And the first thing, I just want you to know Jesus knows hearts. Lord, you know everyone's heart. This statement is a comforting statement, and it's a really sobering statement. Think about how many times people around you suspect your motives in doing something or saying something. Maybe they assume that you're out to get them when you were just only trying to help. They assume you're trying to do something bad when you were just, maybe clumsily, but trying to do something kind. The Lord knows your heart. That's comforting. I might have made a mess of the way I was trying to help, and God knows my heart. He's going to judge me based on my motives. And he knows. And what he thinks matters most of all. You might have tried to tell somebody about Jesus, and they got really mad at you. And it rubbed them the wrong way. 
you're wondering, should I feel guilty? That friendship is really a rocky place right now? I want you to be comforted in the Lord knows your heart. Jesus will sort it all out. He knows what was behind your intentions. And maybe you need to ask for forgiveness for the way you said something. But the why is so much more important to the Lord Jesus. And he knows. He knows. Jesus also knows if our motives are bad. He knows if the reason we come to church is just to feel good about ourselves. There's to ease our guilty consciences if we don't. Jesus knows whether the reason someone calls themselves a Christian is just because they want the perks of a Christian community, but they have no real interest in the king of Christianity and in following him with every part of their life. Jesus knows, and he sees, and he'll sort it all out. He will judge. So search your heart, right? Ask Jesus, Lord, you know my heart. You know it better than I know. You've been watching me for eternity. You know me better than I know myself. Search me and know me. See my anxious thoughts, right? The Psalm 139 says, see if there be any offensive way in me. Lead me. The second thing I want to say is Jesus, entrust Jesus with your decisions. How many of you ask Jesus daily for wisdom in your decision making? He wants a relationship with you. Jesus wants to be part of your day. If you're a Christian, we don't have to roll dice anymore. The Spirit is in us. He wants us to talk to Him about everything. Just like you would talk to a closest friend. He is in control of history. He knows the hearts of men. Nothing is a surprise for the Lord Jesus, not even the betrayal of Judas, one of his closest friends. Never saw that one coming. Jesus did. Jesus knows. So ask Jesus to be a part of your day. So then finally, Peter's leadership shows God's power to redeem failures. Remember what Peter did to Jesus? Jesus predicted it. He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Kind of like what Satan asked for Job. You see this Peter guy? He's always the first in a fight. He's brave, he's bold, he's loud, he thinks he knows everything about the Messiah and his program for humanity and history. He'd do anything for the king of Israel. And Satan says, you see this guy? I want to test him to the breaking point. I want him to be able, I want him to fall away. Right? And Jesus says, you will. You'll deny me three times. One for every, you know. In, in the Old Testament, the number three is often very significant. It's a testing it's a symbol of testing. Testing happens on the third day. Third day of testing. It's all over the right? And this is a simple odd number, right? Three times means you failed, you failed, you really failed. You failed the test completely. You ever failed in your Christian life? You ever feel like I failed completely? 
I'm down on the floor. I've got nothing left. I'm a failure. Do you, what does God think of you? Right? I love what Jesus says. I pray for you. If you're down feeling a failure, know that Jesus prays for you. And he says, I prayed for your faith that wouldn't fail. After you've returned, strengthen your brothers. When you come back, come back stronger in my strength. Because you've been there, and you know what it's like to be weeping. And that's what Peter was doing after his third denial. Jesus, who's being murdered, turns and looks at him. And Peter, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verse 62, went outside and wept bitterly. Bitterly. Weeping. And yet God can redeem those tears. He can bring you back because Jesus is praying for you. And so this vision of Peter that we see in Acts chapter 1, it's a beautiful thing. And Luke wants us to connect it to Peter's failure. Because Jesus specifically said, when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And that's exactly what Peter's doing. He says, there's not enough of us. We need 12 if we're going to rule Israel by the word about the king and bring his word to the ends of the earth. Let's go now to the Lord and close our time in prayer. Lord, I thank you that even now you are interceding for us before the throne, that you are praying for our faith, that we would keep trusting you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us, that you've given your life for us, that you love Peter that you have the power to strengthen us and lift us up of all the failures that we have made. Lord, I pray that we would lean on you this, this week, that we would trust you in all things for your name's sake. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.